divine blessing. We stated last time around, you remember that Micah uses the word now. And he uses it to indicate a change in time. And it refers to a more imminent future as opposed to the last days that you read about in the verse 1 of chapter 4. Micah has already used two nows. You'll see them in verse 9 and verse 11 of chapter 4. And the third one he now uses to commence this fifth chapter. And again, the same truth as before is what Micah is telling the people. In other words, he's showing them the transformation that there will be and will take place from the hopelessness of a siege and a people in exile. We covered that the last time. To the deliverance of the Lord or the deliverance that the Lord himself would give. And if you look at those times, he uses the word now. It's not merely a repeating of the same message, but it is a coming from a different perspective each time. The first one in chapter nine of uh, chapter four, verse nine, it shows that the people would know deliverance, but only from the viewpoint of being exiled in a foreign land. And of course, he went on to say that they would be going to Babylon, it would be an exiled people that would go out into the open fields, they would have to leave that city, and they would be found in Babylon. And as such, they would be like Israel of old, because God delivered them as an exiled people. He brought them out of the land of Egypt, and he delivered them and brought them into the promised land. So there's a likeness there. The second now, in the words of verse 11, remind us that the Lord was in control over what was happening. Even though those in the very midst of that happening didn't understand that. And they weren't aware of it. They didn't understand this counsel. They didn't know the thoughts of God and his plans, as you read in verse 12. And this third now, chapter 5, verse 1, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He had laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. It pictures how the Lord will deliver his people. How the Lord will restore unto them the prosperity. And it comes probably just before the very best known verse in all of Micah. If anybody knows any verse in Micah, you can rest assured it will probably be chapter 5 verse 2. For in these words is a description of a, law, of a ruler. And that ruler that would come forth from Bethlehem. But before he introduces verse 2, and particularly the person that is spoken of verse 2 as the Messiah, he addresses Zion again as under siege. There's need for them to prepare. There's need for them to organize themselves and to meet the attack of the enemy and their assault on the city. Why? For they have led siege against us. And he doesn't say he's led siege against you. You see again how Micah identifies with the people. What happened to the people is what happened to him. And any pastor with her salt doesn't separate himself from his own congregation. What happens to a congregation happens to the preacher, vice versa. And Micah identifies and he says, they have led siege against us, including me. What follows is descriptive language detailing the humiliation suffered by the ruler of the city. 
Now that's not speaking, verse 1 is not speaking about the Lord, for the word ruler that is used there is the same word that is used in the book of Judges following the time of Joshua and how God raised up judges and rulers over the people. But this human ruler is not able to defend himself. He's not able to deliver his people. He's unable to rescue himself from personal abuse because it speaks there of the smiting of the cheek. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. The smiting of the cheek is in other places used to denote suffering and humiliation. I just give you one uh, reference, Judge 16, Job 16, verse 10. They have gaped upon me with their mouth. They have smitten me upon the cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. And it's used to show humiliation, the rod. The rod that symbolically should have been a symbol of authority instead was snatched from this ruler and it was used to beat him. He's smitten on the cheek as humiliation. We might say that this is a very depressing scene of the king, seemingly powerless, seemingly defenseless, humiliated. It only but magnifies, however, the contrast that is noted in the following words. For verse 2, as we come to it, takes to us to a different place. It introduces us to a different ruler. It says, but thou. You see the contrast. The ruler in verse 1 was human. He's defenseless, couldn't even defend himself. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be the ruler in Israel. Though Zion will be humbled by foreign powers, and though her judge will be defenseless, yet in due time God will raise up a greater ruler from a most humble place called Bethlehem. Micah points them away from the place of Zion. He takes them to a place that is only well known because David, the first king of Israel, was born there. And Saul preceded him, of course, but God's first king. And David was born in Bethlehem. That's the only reason that it's uh, known. It is off the beaten track. It was a city that was not great. It didn't have a great influence. And yet God would go back to that same outwardly unpromising beginning. And he would choose it to be the place where the Messiah should be born. And you remember, men and women, we're coming this time of the year. We're approaching where we often go to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2. Do you remember Matthew chapter 2, the chief priests? And the rulers of that day, they heard the shepherds come and said to old Herod, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And old Herod, he turned to his, uh, his leaders and his scribes and his chief priests. And they knew the prophecy of Micah. Because they were fit to tell Herod that he would be born in Bethlehem of Ephrata. They understood the prophecy. And they told it to him. You just think of the names. Bethlehem means house of bread. And the Lord say, I am the living bread that cometh down from above. He said, he that cometh to me shall never hunger. And then you have Ephrata. Ephrata is the old name that the Jews love for that place. 
And Ephrata has the meaning of fruitfulness or abundance. And the Lord in his incarnation was to come forth in the house of fruitfulness. And the reason that you and I can be fruitful in our Christian walk is because he is fruitful. And if you take those two names together, it conjures up a picture of prosperity. Where before there's barrenness, where before there's famine. Now there's the house of bread. Now there's the one who's the bread of life. And he said, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Only the Lord could do this. The promised one to come would come out of Bethlehem. But look at the words. Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This is the promise of the Messiah. In whom the promises of the Davidic covenant are fully realized. You turn back to Second Samuel at chapter 7. You'll see that covenant made before David. Chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, verse 12. When thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of man, with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from it, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak on to David. That's a word from God to David. And David's kingdom will be established. And of course, Christ has come through that line of David. He is the Lion of Judah. And he's come through the line of David. A king who would have the means of restoring and exercising the Lord's rule over his people. Verse 2 of Micah 5 is very important. Not only is it prophetic, it's speaking of Christ. But those last words, men and women, they are well known because they underline that they must, this must be the Messiah. And that Micah's prophetic voice declared that Though Christ would come out of Bethlehem, he did not begin there. You grasp that. He is eternal. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Not born. Because the son is everlasting. Whose goings forth have been from of old. From everlasting. His goings forth are from before the foundation of the world. Literally the phrase from of old there may be rendered and may read like this. From days of eternity. So Christ, men and women, as God is, is from eternity in the past to eternity in the future. His goings do not start with his future appearance in Bethlehem. He had already begun. Even from days of eternity. He that was prophesied of coming in the future throughout the scriptures. His goings had been from the remote past. 
And you have many instances found throughout the word of God of that very same truth that you're looking at in chapter 5, verse 2 of Micah. He, of course, is known as the Alpha and Omega. Alpha is the first letter, Omega the last. The, the beginning and the ending. That means that there never was a time when the Lord did not exist. Before I was born in Bethlehem, he existed in the second person of the Trinity. His goings are from of old, from everlasting. Please come with me to his high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. And you will see it for yourself from his own lips. John chapter 17 verse 5. This can truly be described as the Lord's prayer. He's praying to his heavenly father. It says and now verse 5. O father glorify thou me with thine own self. Underline it with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So God was manifest in the flesh. He was incarnated at Bethlehem. We remember that particularly at this time of year, we can remember at any time of the year. Christ was born. But that wasn't his beginning. He's the eternal son. The glory which I had with thee before the world was. Look at verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Same truth. Father and the Son had a shared love and glory before the creation of all things. The eternal Son existed before he revealed himself as Jesus. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Before Bethlehem, he created all things. That's where our hymn was based on tonight. The opening words of John's Gospel, John chapter 1. And the first number of verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Before he spake this world into being, Christ was there. The Word was God. Then there are the instances, of course, in the Old Testament which prove it as well. The Lord appeared. As God incarnate, or as the angel of the Lord. We don't need to take time to Remind yourself about that time where he met with Abraham. Or that time that he met with Joshua. And as he looked and was surveying the city of Jericho, the Lord met with him. Those were Old Testament appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many, many more are found throughout those books. In each instance, the person is given maybe a different title. But in all cases, he's plainly referred to as the Lord himself in human form. Men didn't bow down. You don't bow down before men. But Joshua fell on his face before God. Abraham worshipped God. Abraham stood before the Lord in prayer. Again, proving that his goings are from everlasting. And knowing that the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, that teaches us, it shows us that the glory of Christ 
But he's far more than any man. It shows us the love of the Lord. He would leave the glories of heaven behind for us. It shows us his nature that he would add humanity to his divinity, to his deity. Two natures in a one person, the God-man. And it also teaches us the sympathy of the Lord, that he remains fully God and fully man. And thank God he is. As we come in prayer tonight, he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We don't come before, the one, before one tonight who doesn't know what you and I go through or suffer by the pangs of the heart. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Isn't that a tremendous verse? Micah. Little known Micah is the one, the prophet, that brings it forth. Hundreds of years before it actually came to pass. What about the implications of the manner in which the Lord would deliver? Look at verse 3. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she will, which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. He will come out of lowly circumstances. Lowly Bethlehem, little among Judah, and a lowly stable. And it will be a time when Israel will seemingly be abandoned by God to devastation by her enemies, to exile when her rightful kings will not reign over her. But that abandonment will only be until she that hath travaileth hath brought forth. You'll know from chapter 4 and verse, uh, what is it, 9 or so, 9 and 10, the same analogy is used there. Of the travailing and birth. The time when Zion is described. Undergoing immense pain and agony. It's then from within her shall be born the Messiah. And the other condition is. It will be till the rest of the brethren return unto the children of Israel. The desire of course is for a people to be reunited. Both the northern and the southern kingdoms. They were divided during Solomon's reign. That abandonment is brought to an end as the Lord reverses the effects of human sin. Partially fulfilled, of course, in the return from exile, but much more so in Christ, in whom the building is fitly framed together. After the time of the great tribulation and the restoring of Israel. You'll consider with me a couple of verses. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 21. Ephesians 2 20 says this. Now are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus himself, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. And God's gospel goes forth. And his house has been built. And there's one foundation which is Christ. And in that house and men and women there's a uniting of Gentile and Jew. We're all one in Christ. You consider what he said in John's gospel chapter 10. The great chapter of the shepherd verse 16 he's teaching he says and other sheep I have which are not of this fold them also I must bring they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd he's speaking to the Jew but he says there are other sheep I have which are not of this fold 
praise his name. That means the gospel has reached for us, for the Gentile. I don't think any of your Jews, well, might be by practice, but <laughs> not by birth. <laughs> We're all Gentile. We're all Gentile. And the Lord says there'll be one fold, one shepherd. You see the reuniting. Do you see the further description of the Messiah in verse 4? He shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. The majesty of the name of the Lord is God. He shall stand. He shall shepherd his flock. He'll feed them. He'll look after them. He does so in the strength of the Lord. His reign shall be clothed with majesty because of the authority given to him by God. And that sheep, that flock will be secure. Because he stands, they too shall stand. And they too shall endure. And his greatness and his kingdom will extend universally. If you think of Zechariah chapter 9, just a few books over, and the words of verse 10, And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. There's a promise. Christ's kingdom will be everlasting, but his kingdom will be universal. It'll extend right across the world. And Nay, every knee shall bow in this nation, that kingdom, that tongue, that people. One day will be in glory. And you'll notice here that the one prophesied of as a ruler in Bethlehem doesn't merely bring peace. He is peace. Verse 5. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land. Assyrian can be used as a generic term as just the Gentile armies and enemies. Not particularly from Assyria. Did they come through that part of the land? But it is a description of uh, just the whole conglomerate of enemy that surrounds Israel and surrounds the people. And what follows is the manner in which the coming Messiah destroys his people's enemies. It's the Lord alone who can give that deliverance. It's the Lord alone that can overcome the enemy of Israel from wherever they come from. The people of God are still under attack. And you know, we are to be ready to attack and to battle and to fight, not as the world does. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Our enemies are powers of darkness and the spiritual wickedness in high places. And as is spoken of in these verses, the Lord, you know, equips his people with sufficient leadership. Because you look at the words of verse 5, it brings that thought out. This man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. And when he shall trade in our palaces, then shall be raised against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. There will be sufficient leaders among his people. And as it is depicted even in these words, so today, men and women, God gives to his church those who will pastor, those who will teach, those who will prepare the people for battle and for action. 
I draw you back again to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 verse 11. It says, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body in Christ. He gives that to his his church. That his flock might be strengthened, edified, prepared for the great battle that is ongoing. You'll notice something. He doesn't give entertainers. He gives teachers, pastors. And it is for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. The victory is assured. It's assured not because of the under-shepherds that God has given to rule over his people, but rather success and victory is credited to him that gives the deliverance. In verse 6, right in the middle of it, they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod to the, in the entrance of the rough. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land, when he treadeth within our borders. The strength to obtain that victory comes from the risen and glorified Lord. For we can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. That victory is further developed in the closing verses of that chapter. I'm only going to uh, really skim over them and summarize the whole thing. Two pictures are used to convey that truth. The people are likened, verse 7, to the Jew. Not not J-E-W, but D-E-W. The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. The other picture I'm going to look at is 8 and 9 is that of the lion. Two different pictures. You'll appreciate in the dry climate of the land of Israel, the Jew is very welcome. The Jew is often a heavy Jew. The showers are not light, but they're heavy. And it needs to be because they help the growth to start among even the crops. And the Jew or the showers don't wait. They don't depend upon men. They're God's provision. And so the remnant of his people will be like the Jew. It'll spread among the nations, spreading the knowledge of God and calling upon those nations to seek the Lord while he may be found. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Great commission. God hasn't purchased his church to be sleeping or to be busy. And he fortifies us for the battle when we are busy. And then the second picture is that of the lion. Totally different, of course. Contrasting ministry. Speaks of how his people will be empowered. When the Lord is with his people, there's no force that is able to resist or to oppose them effectively. Just like the lion. The lion is the king of the jungle. 
And there are two pictures that the Lord uses to show that his people will have the victory. But that will only be so when there is the purifying of the people and the Lord ensures that will be. You see, their dependence will be, just look at this one when I go through it, their dependence will be upon the Lord. Verse 10, will not be upon horses or chariots. God will be their guide. It'll not be the witchcrafts. It'll not be the soothsayers. It'll not be seeking them. God will be their guide. These things were all known, you see, in Israel, how they'd sinned against the Lord. You'll notice also their idolatry will be dealt with. Verse 13. Graven images will I cut off, standing images out of the midst of thee. I shall no more worship the work of thine hands. I'll pluck up thy groves. Dealt with. And they were a people of known greatly for idolatry. These verses speak of the action the Lord uses to cleanse his people from all that was polluting them. And the chapter closes with the vengeance of the Lord. The vengeance that the Lord will take against the nations who have refused to obey. Being indifferent, being rebellious to his right as the Lord of all the earth. The time will come when they will experience his anger and his wrath. And Paul brings out the very same. If you turn over and close into 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, just look at the words of verse 8 to 10. Let me just back up to verse 7. He says, Unto you your trouble rests with us when the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. There is the second coming in view. In flaming fire. He's not coming back as a weak babe the next time. He's not coming back lowly Bethlehem the next time we're a stable because there's no room in the inn he's coming back in all his power and glory in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord from the glory of his power and he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. He that is from everlasting to everlasting his vengeance will be poured out upon those who rebelled and obeyed not and their destruction will be everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord prepares his people, you see, to be secure or to be ready to serve him in holiness, you should say. It'll also be that time when he will secure the punishment of those who rejected his claims upon them and despised his authority. Aren't you glad tonight that you're on the Lord's side? That the Lord be for us who can be against us? We don't uh, go forward to gain the victory. We're already in it. We move from victory on to victory. 
all because of what Christ purchased on the cross. And you see at the cross, men and women, our judgment. Our judgment that we deserve because we've got to get ourselves there into verse 15 as well. We deserve that vengeance of the Lord. We deserve that anger and fury been poured out upon us. But instead, it was poured out upon Christ, that ruler of Israel, that one who came from Bethlehem, whose goings forth had been from of old, from everlasting. That's why we delight when we sing of Calvary, and we delight to think on what Christ has purchased for us on the cross. May the Lord bless his word even to our heart tonight.